There is no Toby Haydokes Who's Round. Toby Haydokes Who's Round does not exist. There is no Toby Haydokes Who's Round. This is a delight. Uh, we're going to be covering four missing episodes of Doctor Who with a key player in their creation. So I'm going to ask today's interviewee who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. My name is John Davies. I first started directing drama in 1964, though I'd worked in other areas of broadcasting before then. And Doctor Who was probably fairly early on in my career. I mean, we're talking about 1967. I was surprised to be asked to do it because... I'd never sh- shown an inclination to do that sort of drama, but uh, I welcomed it, did it, and um, enjoyed it. And it was the Macro Terror, so you were wrangling giant crabs. Well, the Macro Terror, we, we were told that we had to have some horrific monster, and we didn't know what we were going to do with it. So Ken Sharp, who was a designer, and I, we went to the Natural History Museum, and we looked around there, and we looked at the big monsters that exist uh, in the Natural History Museum, and then we went into the entomological department and found a very tiny insect that was probably about the size of a pinhead and we looked at it through magnifying glasses and we thought wow if we could actually build one of those up to about the size of a mini car uh, it would be great it had sort of slobbering white wet lips with black bristles and a wide open gorge that was ready to swallow anything that it came in its way and a sort of crab-like gait a huge Monsters blown up from the size of a pinhead. And it was actually the biggest Doctor Who monster created up to that date? Well, I, I didn't realise that, but it certainly, at one stage, had to try and swallow Annika Mills. Uh, Wills. Um, she, um, I remember, it was only just her ankles and her feet that were jutting out of its mouth at one stage before she was rescued. Mm. And um, your Doctor was Patrick Troughton, relatively early in his tenure. Yes, I believe so. Now, he was good to work with, and um, I, I realised that, yes, he was the new, newish Doctor Who, and uh, he was good. He was um, relaxed and funny to work with, and that's always nice when there are a few jokes along the way. Uh, your, your main guest star of uh, the Macrotero was the incomparable Peter Jeffrey. Yes, I, rem- I remember uh, thinking we were perhaps, I don't know, pitching it too high to actually ask him to come and see us, but he came, and... Uh, we talked for about half an hour, and I realised that, yes, he would be wonderful. So I said to him, but um, would you like to do it? And he said, I couldn't go home and tell my children that I'd refused it. I couldn't possibly. I, would have, to, I have to do it. And he enjoyed it, I think. Mm. Uh, is there any reason that it was the only Doctor Who that you did? No, I don't think so. I, I was... Uh, I think I was working on Z cars before then, and I was... No, I was asked to do uh, an adaptation classic adaptation of uh, Nana by Emil Zola, which of course um, was hugely attractive. I mean, a colour came in in 1968, and that was the first colour uh, drama that I did. I think it was only the second colour drama that the BBC did. It started on BBC Two. Mm. No, I was I had to had to do Nana. It was a, a great great production to work on. And that hit the headlines, did it not? Yes, it did. I mean, it's it's um, it's a very 
exciting but frank story about a woman who is really a, a prostitute. She's a courtesan in the 1860s in Paris, and she has she's surrounded by journalists and pimps and other tarts, and she and and she um, also got involved with the aristocracy and, and brought several several members of the aristocracy down when it was found out that they were having these sort of affairs with her. And uh, it's a hugely moral tale, but it, was, it entailed fully frontal female nudity on stage where she danced and how she gained her fame. And um, it, was, it certainly shocked some of the BBC hierarchy, and I, in a bit of research later when I went to the BBC archives to find out what was going on upstairs at that time, it was quite interesting to hear the reaction of the governors and of David Attenborough, who was then controller of the BBC too. And... Um, they didn't like it a bit, but we were getting huge audiences, and uh, we got very good press reactions. And it um, it was being transmitted at about the same time as Hair in the West End, which actually, uh, and also at the same time, it was the end of theatrical censorship, which had been going since the 1700s. So 1968 was that sort of year. So much was changing. And... What oh no, this will be a good thing to rule out because the internet being the internet has led to you in a lot of uh, Doctor reference books and places to be confused with John Howard Davis, yes. the, the excellent comedy producer. Yes, John Howard Davis and I knew each other at the BBC, both working in very different fields, obviously. He was always in light entertainment. And um, he used to get my post, I used to get his, and we would meet in the canteen sometimes and laugh about it. And... and um, he then went in one direction, I went in another. But on the internet now, with so much inaccuracy, of course, I was being, I was being billed as the producer of Forty Towers, and he has had credits on the screen and in books for directing War and Peace. So it actually led me in the end to think, I've got to actually um, get myself a website to put the record straight, because obviously these inaccuracies get perpetuated, and it goes on year after year after year. So um, I got myself a website with a full sort of CV and breakdown of everything that I'd done. <laughs> so it's the only way to Desperate actually measures. only yeah. way to quash it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but whereas John Howard Davis excelled in um, comedy, you carved an extraordinary niche for certainly people of my generation. A number of crime dramas done: P.D. James and Ruth Rendell. You you launched George Baker's Inspector Wexford and, and devised the series, didn't you? Yes, I did. I mean, that started in fact with the P- first P.D. James I did, which was a series called Cover Her Face, which was made by Anglia Television, and. Um, that got very good audiences as well, and it made me realise what sort of... Um, that if you got a good book, um, uh, a well-written novel, and was not just simply a crime pulp book, uh, you could enjoy yourself with um, getting the right sort of actors and performances and, and, and doing some worthwhile work. So we got 16.5 million for the last episode of Cover Her Face, the, the Anglia P.D. James saga. And then uh, I started to look around for other product, other product and found, of course, the Ruth Rendell books. She, believe it or not, at that stage, had not actually had anything done on television. It's a bit strange looking back on that now and realising that. And I found a book and took it to uh, Southern Television and uh, sold it to them over within days of them reading it. And so we did that and we made it on tape. 
and um, it was successful and got into the top ten of that first week when it was first transmitted. Um, George Baker we cast, yes, as Inspector Wexford, and it ran and ran and ran for years, of course. I left and went off to do more Peter James, um, did four of her novels, and um, they always got, yes, they were always wonderfully fulfilling those books. Uh, P.D. James is, is really a very good writer. She's not just writing about crime. She's, she's trying to say all sorts of other more profound things than the actual case in hand. And so they were very rich. It was a very rich scene to be working on, and one could get the most wonderful actors onto the, onto the cast because uh, they all knew what they were going to be let in for. Well, um, going back to Ruth Rendell, George Baker only died earlier this year, and right. I sadly never met him, but all my colleagues who worked with him, and every actor I know that's ever worked with him, says that he was just about the nicest man on the planet. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. He was very sweet, and he, um, he well, launched it for us, of course, and I think it ran for probably ten years. There, there were so many books. Ruth had written so many books that uh, it went on for much longer than I would ever have anticipated. I mean, it's, uh, no, he was, he was lovely, a great, great actor to work with. A lot of crime drama comes and goes, but when I was looking at, um, you know, the list of stuff that you'd cover her face, uh, um, why didn't they ask Evans, they're all things that, without any prompting, I remembered. So mm. what's, what's the knack of making a memorable piece of crime drama? Well, obviously, the, the knack, first of all, is to, is to get the right product and to get the right book and to get the, the script written that well. I mean, I, I also did um, a Miss Marple with Joan Hickson. And uh, I don't believe that the book was particularly good. I mean, the script was better than the book. And so we actually got away with that one. It was very, it was very well received. But um, the first thing, yes, is to get the right product and to... Um, and to get the right writer. And then if you've got that, you can attract the right actors. And um, you've got to try and, certainly with a, a, many of them, you, you try and create a sense of place. I mean, Phyllis James, B.D. James, is very strong on that. She draws the background very clearly for you, and it's a lot of fun getting that right, placing your actors, your scene, in the right sort of background and using the background. She once, when she wrote a taste, a cover her face, taste for death, sorry, a taste for death, a lot of it was a murder in a, the crypt of a church which she'd set by the Grand Union Canal in London. And she placed by the Grand Union Canal a church. Uh, it had to be uh, a church of the Oxford movement, which is a sort of Catholic semi-Anglo-Catholic sect that was very strong in the late 19th century. And the designer and I said, OK, when we first set out on the first recce, let's walk along the canal and find a, a place on the canal that we can stage a lot of this action. And we walked along the canal and saw this church sitting by the canal. And she said that she... I have to say that she said that she knew what this church was, but it wasn't in London, it was in Oxford. She'd moved it in the book. And we went to this church, which seemed right from the outside, and we couldn't get in. And so we went, turned around and saw that the, um, the rectory was in fact a little flat in a modern housing estate just behind the church. So we rang the bell, and the, the vicar came to the door in his 
cassock and we said that we would like to get into the church to take a look because we were uh, televising this book and he said I know what the book is it's um, A Taste for Death Peter James and that's about me I've read the book and it's about this location and we had to deny it in fact when we eventually got permission to shoot in that church and we did shot there for a couple of weeks um, Phyllis Peter James came to the church and I said come on you must have actually been thinking about this church you knew it you knew it was here and she said no honestly I didn't I had no idea it was here. It's absolutely right, darling. Absolutely right. <laughs> How extraordinary. Yes, it was. And it was the exact uh, relationship between the church and the canal. It was important. And the church had to be, yes, a Victorian church set in a modern housing estate. Set in a modern housing estate. And it was surrounded by high-rise flats. But Victorian in the canal. Spooky. How extraordinary. Mm. Well, and of course, you, you mentioned the writer being there. The difference between doing an Agatha Christie and doing a, a, a P.D. James is, is that the writer is... is a, a, so how careful do you have to be to negotiate between turning a book into a screenplay and all the necessary changes that that entails when the author is still, still very much with you? Yes, I mean, Phyllis always came to the locations and she seemed always pleased with what we were doing. Um, and the same went for Ruth Rendell. I, um, she wrote to me after the first production saying how pleased she was and that uh, we'd cast it so well they were exactly what she had envisaged, which is um, all you need to hear from a writer when you've, you've dramatised uh, someone, someone's work. No, she's, uh, I like having writers around if they're, uh, if they're interested enough to stay with you and be with you. Would you have met Ian Stuart Black, the writer of Doctor Who? Who was, who was actually no slouch as a writer. No, you know, no. He's got some good credits. I, I'm afraid I can't remember that. Innis Lloyd produced it, um, and the script was already there, and I can't remember now whether there were any script conferences after I'd been asked to sit down and get on with it. Innis Lloyd put his head round the door on the first morning and said, make it frightening, old boy. <laughs> so I... Did my best, and um, I shot one sequence. It was an interrogation sequence. I think it was Michael Craze being interrogated. So I, I put him on a turntable with his head at the centre of the turntable, and we spun it, and I shot it through a mirror. So we were looking, in fact, at a close-up of Michael Craze revolving at speed with flashing lights and a voice saying, well, you will tell us everything, you will tell us everything. I was hauled up in front of the um, departmental head, dear Sean Sutton, who said, have you got children, old boy? I mean, have you got children? I mean, what's going on here? I mean, you can't do that. You can't say it. We had to shorten that sequence considerably. But that was, was that because, were you, you know, as a, it was a relatively early credit for you, so were you, if you were a young director on Doctor Who, was it something that you could use to try and make your mark? Probably, yes. And break the house style, if there was Probably, a house well, style. I, I mean, Innis asked me to make it frightening, and I did my best, and obviously <laughs> yeah. uh, overdid it. But, uh, no, I, I wouldn't have wanted my own children, <laughs> and very soon after that I had children. Um, I wouldn't have wanted them to see that. They would have been behind the sofa. 
Yes, there's a curious casting thing happening. There's an actress called Sandra Bryant who's in it in the first episode. When her character returns in episode four, it's an actress called Carol Keyes who went on to become an actress called Luann Peters. Um, yes. So Sandra Bryant disappears because I think her agent says she's, she's had a better offer. So it's oh, really? quite unusual to, to recast mid-story, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, it's happened to me certainly later on when we did Nana. Um, we'd cast a girl who was a medium to small part and... Um, it was in episode one or two, and the, the, the character didn't uh, recur until episode five or something when she was getting married. She'd gone. No one could find her. she disappeared. I still don't know what happened to her. We had to cast someone else uh, and hope that no one noticed. And, in fact, as she was getting married, they, uh, there were veils and things, so we, <laughs> we were very lucky and we got away with it. But it was a silly situation and really rather... Um, Frustrating, of course, at the time, but uh, no one noticed, I'm sure. Well, of course, the, the one part you can uh, recast and actually everyone celebrates it is, is Doctor Who, and you've worked with um, Colin Baker when you did War and Peace. Yes, that's Which right. you did... The listeners may need to gird themselves this. You did 20 episodes of War and Peace. Mm-hmm. You directed them all. I did, yep. For the BBC. Yeah. Mixture of film and studio. Yeah. Yugoslavia and the UK. Yeah. How long did that take? I think we were working on it for two years from the first moment of sitting down in the office and uh, the, la- the end of the, the three-month editing session uh, in the bowels of the television centre. Uh, there was a lot of film on it, shot, as you say, in Yugoslavia, but also in this country. Uh, we went to Yugoslavia to obviously get the big open spaces for the battles and, and, and the, the, the retreat from Moscow and the advance on Moscow, all of those things. So we went in the summer and we went in the winter. And um, we had a huge cooperation from the Yugoslavs. Uh, they built sets for us out there in, in the open air, and they provided, uh, well, they were going to provide a thousand, thousand extras from their army. And um, that was fixed. That was going to happen. We are going to have a thousand men from their army. And then we got a call to say that the army was needed, actually, on the borders with Romania. And they couldn't, but they could uh, offer us their territorials. So uh, that sounded bad news, and uh, I went out there. They said they would actually demonstrate what the territorials could do, so I went out there and urged to go out there by Sean Sutton, David Conroy, my bosses. And um, I reviewed the troops, as it were, and, and um, they're a mixed bunch. But um, I was forced to accept that. And uh, I, was, I, I was not clear whether the, what they would be like or whether they would even turn up or whether they would take proper instructions because we were trying to um, recreate Napoleonic battle formations and the use of you know antique weapons and um, they were wonderful actually when we finally came to it and my military advisors we had three military advisors who were military historians from Sandhurst who said actually you did better because the Yugoslav army would have been young recruits this lot were a mixed bag, they were old sweats, they were youngsters, which is what Napoleon's Grand Army was. So you've done better, they said. And uh, I had to take their word for it, because they, these guys were out there with us all the time, from Sandhurst, and um, advising us on, well, weapons and, and formations and battle formations and, and even uniforms and all the rest of it. And even the sites for shooting some of the battles. I still remember one of them looking at where we thought we'd do the battle, battle of Borodino. He stood on this crest looking out down there. He said, yes, 
very good killing ground, I think. Very good killing ground. And this was, you know, our sign of approval. Borodino could be shot there, so we did. Um, and, of course, you know, those were the days, and you did it on more than War and Peace, mm-hmm. where, you know, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Hollywood star, mm. would crop up in primetime television drama. Mm. Uh, and you could get him for... <laughs> nearly 18 months' work. So yes. you worked with Hopkins a few times. Yes, I, I did a play with him long before War and Peace, which was uh, a play about the French Revolution. He was playing Danton to Alan Doby's Robespierre. And that was the first time I worked with him. And uh, so when I got uh, the job making War and Peace, he was my first thought. Um, other people put up other names, but I hung on to it. and hung on to Tony. And um, I was just anxious that he would he actually uh, accept this job because it was going to run for a long, long time and surely had, you know, other prospects. But he said yes. I, it was lucky that I had that good working relationship that we'd enjoyed working together before and he uh, picked it up and came with us. And uh, yes, he was a joy to work with. I loved working with him and I did other things after that but with him. Yeah, Yeah, he cast him as Lloyd George and also... Yes, yeah. yes. Um, you also um, have worked with. Uh, uh, I have to. We have to ask about um, uh, Bonnie Langford on Just William. Yeah. Because poor old Bonnie. She ended up in Doctor Who many many moons Did later. Did she? I didn't know she done she was, When she was yes. an adult performer, yeah, she yeah. became a regular in, mm. in Doctor Who. No, she's a good, uh, a good actor. She's a good, great performer. I've seen her so often in the theatre since. Yes. And those Just Williams were they were huge successes at the time. Yeah, she. I think she was about twelve at the time, something like that, and. Uh, she was remarkable. I mean, it's um, people would say to me things like, oh, that awful girl you're working with. And I said, she's lovely, she's wonderful, she's a real pro, she's a terrific little girl. And she would come to the read-throughs, and uh, everyone sitting there around the table with their scripts. She didn't need a script. She had learnt it. And she, had, she knew her part in that particular episode, and she just sat there doing it. And she was um, stoic, good little girl. Remember her fourteenth birthday party, and you know she had a cake, and you all had champagne in the rehearsal rooms, and so on. No, she's she was good news. I liked her. Yes, I mean I'm, I'll scream and scream until I'm sick and I can. Um, I mean she did that so beautifully, and, and uh, she did. I mean there was one scene where she was with the boys in in, the, in a wood, and it had been raining very hard, and there was a lot of mud, and she had to with her long red ringlets. She had to fall flat on her face in the mud and get, and you know, with the little white dress, absolutely plastered with mud. Just all you could see were the her eyes, you know, through all this mud. And she, you know, didn't complain, laughed about it, and got on with it, which is what she should have done, of course. But you sometimes wonder when you see a little thing like that whether she's going to be able to stand up to it all. But she was, and she was always there and very good. And there was only one occasion when I remember she asked me if she could have some time off to go up to Yorkshire to do a show, Yorkshire Television, and come back. So it cut a day and a half out of her rehearsal. And she came back for the read-through, not having had sufficient preparation, and sat there for the read-through and dried. And she burst into tears. And that made me feel so sad because she set such high standards for herself. Uh, And because she was so tired and she was overworked, even at that age, she dried for a moment, but only for a moment. So we all and only in a rehearsal. And only this is just sitting around. This is just sitting around the table reading, because she was tired, having been up to Yorkshire. Bless her. It's amazing how many of the things that you made stick in my mind from watching them first time round. 
And so I have to mention uh, the... I, well, I think it's famous, but it might just be in my life. Episode of Tales of the Unexpected, where Susan George kills her husband and Brian yes. Blessed comes to Brian investigate it and eats, eats the lamb legs yes. with which she killed him. That's right, yes. <laughs> no, it's, I've, I've worked with Brian before, and uh, I had uh, worked with him on a play... I mean, it, Brian, obviously, uh, has created his own television persona, which is the big roaring boy, and that's how he gets cast always. But he can do other things, and I once cast him in a play... It was a play oh, written by Gerald Savory. It was an adaptation of an Arnold Bennett novel called Whom God Hath Joined. And he played a very passive, quiet, bearded artist. Didn't have a lot to say. but was a gentle, strong man. And he was wonderful. And I knew Brian could do that because I'd had a long conversation with Brian very often about wildlife or the big cats, which he was always very interested in and then Brian would go into this quiet mode and he would almost whispering and talking to her in very low key and, and cared a great deal about the things that he was talking about and he was wonderful but certainly in the in the Tales of the Unexpected he was um, he was a copper who turned up to investigate of course and tucked into the the roast lamb carved it the weapon of um, the murder weapon that had been pulled out of the oven and uh, no, we had great fun, great fun with that one. Mm. Well, and I've nearly exceeded the time, so I'll, I'll wind up with a few um, uh, uh, general questions. Now, this is one that can always be broken into two because you work with a number of actors. Um, so I, I'd ask who's the, who's the best actor that you've worked with, and that can work in two ways because I guess you can have an actor that produces the goods but isn't necessarily the easiest, or you can have an actor that's just so easy to work with. So you can take that in either direction or both. Well, there are two or three. Uh, Anthony Hopkins... I think is the big star in my memory I mean he was good to work with he was supportive he was hugely creative and magic too even in rehearsal I was often moved to tears at some of the things that he was giving us Freddie Jones was another one in, in, in Nana he, he got a BAFTA award for that one uh, he was magic I mean, he would, again, create things in the rehearsal room that was, would be on me. I mean, where they came from, I don't know, but he, he, was, he was very good to work with. But then there's Roy, Roy Marston, who is a good actor and a great leading man because he would help me as a director to hold the company together and, and, um, and keep up everyone's morale and spirits and, and, um, and act as as we've always expected a leading man to... But he, he was outside... That's, this was outside the performance, and he was, he was a man who could help handle the press, and who was... Well, he became a good mate. And of all your pieces, if you had to... If we were to sit down now and you were to show me a piece of work of yours that encapsulates everything you tried to do when making television that you think holds up the best, which would it be? Looking back on it, actually, it's something that I did a very long time ago, which was Germinal. Um... It's a grim story. It's set in the French coal fields in the 1860s, and it's to do with uh, the struggle to get safety money in the mining community. And uh, it was a joy to do. I mean, it's a hugely political piece, and it was a dark piece. There was no music in it. We tried. The designer and I tried to, although we were into colour, to do it in monochrome, and we did. 
all the colours were subdued and what would be shocking would be someone's neckerchief or something which would just be a spark on the screen uh, but other than that there was no music the credits were rolled over the sound of a factory siren uh, a, a pithead siren uh, echoing across the hills and I think it was very strong material and, and I believed in what we were doing and we used we worked with a, a mining community up in Durham who were right behind it. I mean, they were well-read guys, these miners, and they were working, it was an open cast mine up in the Durham coalfield, who, they'd all read this book, this Zola book, they knew about it, and um, they were right behind us. We had, I think, about a thousand of them in the end, with other people drawn in from outside. But um, I look back on that, and I've got a recording of it, it's on VHS, um, so I have seen it, hmm, well, probably five years ago. I think it still stands up very well. And we don't know, sadly, if the Macritera, which certainly wasn't silent, because you've got wonderful Muzak um, to... to radio, I remember the Radiophonic Workshop being called into it, yes. I remember going down there and, and, um, and getting involved in that process. And it will shock you, because when we, we met, you said, you know, you, you weren't sure if it would stand up. It has been described, the Macritera, as the closest Doctor has got to Kafka and Orwell, because oh, really? well, it's yes. this holiday camp that is infested underneath... Yes, with, of course. And, uh, and the big... And, and the, the, we had a big screen in the studio with the controller, I think it was called. Yeah. Who was on the screen, sort of telling people uh, how it was going to be. Um, well, look, um, the Macro Terror sadly doesn't exist. Um, if it turned up, how, how do you think we would find it? Uh, and not into, you know, if we were to see it again, uh, would you be able to watch it? <laughs> Probably between half closed fingers, yes. I mean, it's. I look back on it and I've caught glimpses of the present Doctor Who and I, you know, black and white television with not exactly a trembling, shaking sets, but no, none of the, um, you know, the technological fun that people now have when they're making that sort of material. It wouldn't stand up, obviously. It would be um, a, a bit of a, an, an, an archaeological specimen, I think, sadly. But um, I don't know, perhaps there's a certain charm in that sort of recall anyway. And Ken Sharp was a good designer, wasn't he? Wonderful designer, yes. I came across him very much later on. I didn't work with him, but I came across him much later on. He was working for Anglia. And we hadn't seen each other since Doctor Who. And, uh, yes, no, as usual, you, if you work with someone and uh, for a long enough period, it becomes a very intense relationship, and you, you never forget one another. And even if you bump into one another years later... Well, look, I, I won't forget the fact that you've very kindly uh, given your time. You came and met me. Um, and as you know, you're not getting paid, and nor am I, and nobody's paid to listen to this. So, John, would you like to nominate a charity that the listeners can donate to? The Woodland Trust. The British Woodland Trust. Uh, and Doctor Who, would you believe, John, is 50 years old this year? I gather, yeah. What is your message to the viewers of Doctor Who in its 50th year? Keep watching, kids. There'll probably be another 50 years. Well, if there is, somebody else will have to do a podcast uh, tracking <laughs> down everybody who's been in it since then. John Davis, thank you very much. Thank you, I've enjoyed it. My thanks to John. Uh, what an honour to meet him. Uh, his charity is the Woodland Trust, which can be found at www.woodlandtrust, all one word, all small case, .org.uk, woodlandtrust.org.uk. You can follow me on Twitter uh, at Toby Haydoke, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. That's at Toby Haydoke. And Big Finish are at at Big Finish. Follow them as well. They do lots of jolly good stuff. 
that's all to do with Doctor Who and things. Do tell uh, everyone if you're enjoying these podcasts, and the next one features someone from in front of the camera at a seminal moment in Doctor Who's history. Here's a taster. I kind of didn't grow up with any set accent. I've moved around so much that it, it, I, my accent changed a lot, and having parents with different accents. So I quite enjoyed um, flipping about accents, and it's always interested me. Um, but I've always enjoyed doing that, so that's probably what led me somehow, weirdly, from a military background to being an actor. Mm. <laughs> Hollywood. Think of the, the premieres, the stars, the, the parties. That's just what I am thinking of. The monsters might all be roaming free out there. In Hollywood, on Sunset Boulevard. Shh! Listen. I thought I heard something too. You're here for the elixir, yes, of doom. All this excitement. I don't suppose I'll sleep at all tonight. Oh. 